Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where I get to talk to our editors and reporters about the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is Housing Wire Senior Mortgage Reporter, Georgia Cromry, and we have so much to cover. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Since 2015, Finance of America Mortgage and their skilled, award-winning mortgage advisors have helped over 450,000 customers, closing more than $134 billion in loan volume. Licensed in all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, Finance of America Mortgage is backed by best-in-class lending technology and a wide range of innovative mortgage products that can help turn any borrower into a customer for life. Want to join an award-winning team and evaluate your business? Visit www.joinfamtoday.com forward slash housing wire to learn more. Finance of America Mortgage LLC is licensed nationwide. Equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID number 1771. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Equal opportunity employer. All right. Well, Georgia, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It is always a pleasure. And I'm really excited to talk today about your really big feature on redlining. Um, This is a topic that obviously our our audience cares a ton about. We've done a lot of reporting on it, um, but you really did a deep dive with your recent feature. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the process that went into that? Yeah. So um, I had been interested in the topic, of course, because I'm always drawn to sort of looking a little bit deeper if, if regulatory agencies, if their messaging is is that they're really taking a hard look at this. They're really, you know, scrutinizing um, um, these kinds of practices, and this is a big priority for them. And and if it's a big priority for the Biden administration, I'm, I'm really very interested in kind of um, looking closer at the actions that, that might back up those um, those promises. Um, you know, I think that's just a, a, a basic uh, a basic strategy that that, um, the, that we sometimes take in journalism, right? So I was really interested in kind of looking at okay, they're saying this, but what are they doing? And um, and and what I found was the agencies that are primarily responsible for supervising um, banks and um, and and enforcing the anti-redlining law are are not are not really doing um, doing as much as um, as they could. It, this is this is not necessarily anything new, but um, but there is a lot that they are um, that they are not doing in terms of enforcement. So um, so I thought that was an just an interesting kind of tension between the administration saying that they are are really you know launching an, an assault on redlining. Um, while the agencies that are um, that are the primary regulators in that space are are kind of you know <laughs> they have to be they're they're being dragged kicking and screaming um, <laughs> to enforce it. It, um, it, it. I think that was the the thing that surprised me the most about the story is because I thought that um, I guess because like the was it the DOJ that took action or was it the CFPB that took action against a lender in in Chicago last year? And so I thought. I was surprised um, at some of the things that your story pointed out, which was a lot of it. Um, there's really not a redlining 
uh, enforcement action unless it's unless it's against a specific part of it, which is really when when they want to do a merger. Right, right. So, um, yeah, so the anti-redlining law, it's been around since the 70s, the CRA. Um, there, uh, there are other laws, of course, that, um, that prohibit discrimination in lending, but, um, but this is a law that was really passed to, um, to do something about redlining. But the only time it can be enforced, and this is not something that, that you know, is just a, 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 a narrow interpretation from, um, from the agencies. This is, this is the statute. Um, this is the way lawmakers wrote it in the 70s. The only time that um, that CRA uh, grades mean anything material for um, for banks really um, is when they go to their regulators and ask to um, to have a merger approved. So that's really the only time there's the that that's when the rubber hits the road. That's when um, that's the only opportunity, the only point where a, a regulator could say, "Look, you you can't." You can't keep growing bigger and bigger until you do something about um, your uh, your your lending practices here. Um, but they they don't um, they don't use it in that way. Regulators don't use it in that way. They haven't they haven't denied a um, a, a merger a single merger. None of the agencies have denied a single merger in at least fifteen years. And you know, once you go back fifteen years, I mean, I, I just you just stop <laughs> stop looking at at the data, right? It's just it's just a big zero each year in terms of denials. And so, you know, it's it's certainly certainly a lot of people have um, have looked at that process and said, well, what's going on here? This just looks like a like a like a rubber stamp. The regulators. Aren't um, you know aren't aren't forcing banks to really um, to, to to really they they are not holding them accountable for um, for their lending practices. So so the agencies that you talk about who who look at that so it's the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the OCC right the Office of the Comptroller of the mm-hmm. Currency who look at the the bank mergers, um, but which were not the ones that I considered. I thought it was a CFPB thing. Right, right. So when we hear about redlining, um, especially in um, in the last year or so, the last eighteen months, um, we we hear about um, the CFPB, we hear about DOJ, um, and uh, and and to some extent um, HUD, but um, but but really they don't directly supervise banks day in and day out. They come in when they're usually when there is a referral. From um, from one of the banking agencies, it's sort of like the the um, the banking regulators, the the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC. Those are the ones that are that are really you know they're on the ground with banks. They're the ones um, you know super supervising them um, day in and day out. They um, they are the ones who enforce the CRA. They are their primary regulators. Um, and and the the CFPB and um, DOJ they they don't have authority under the CRA. They have different enforcement authorities. They can they can bring lawsuits um, uh, for um, housing discrimination. CFPB has authority under ECOA, and they have started um, you know using the CFPB has started using a kind of a novel interpretation of ECOA. To um, in order to uh, take a look at redlining, but um, but it's it's kind of a stretch, and that's actually not a settled interpretation. There's a challenge um, to that interpretation, and it has not yet been settled in court. 
Um, so, so those agencies are, um, they have different relationships with, um, with, with banks. Georgia, thanks for outlining that because it is a little bit confusing, you know, so even when those, you know, those agencies, um, that are tasked with this part of it under, um, the CRA look at a bank, what you found is that many times if they, if they're looking at a bank merger and they see this sort of redlining problem, they're going to go to the bank and just be like, Hey, you know, you should probably withdraw as opposed to, to going forward. Tell us a little bit about what you found there. Yeah. So it's a really interesting dynamic and I really tried to understand from the regulator's point of view, you know, why, you know, why, why does this happen? So, um, so when a, when a bank goes um, to get regulatory approval from one of these agencies for a merger, um, and that agency finds some sort of problem with, um, with their application, whether it's, you know, because they've gotten an allegation of redlining, a lawsuit, a community group has written a letter and said said they've been redlining, or they or or something from another agency. Um, it can, you know, it can definitely lead to a delay. In the case of the Federal Reserve, they um, they report like the voluminous statistics on their um, merger review to um, to Congress each year, and um, you know, if a community group writes in. Um, during a merger review and says, hey, you can't approve this, um, this merger because this bank has been, um, has been redlining. That does lead to a really lengthy delay. And as we know, um, like during a merger, the, the timeline is very important. You, uh, a bank wants to, to be able to tell their investors, this is when the transaction is going to close. We know for sure this is when it's happening. They want to have certainty. So, so the fact that there's a delay is, um, you know, that's that's a big deal. Um, but none of those reviews have led to um, to any denial. And if there is some sort of a problem with the um, with the application, um, banking agencies tend to give the banks a call and say, um, you know, there might be a problem with your application. And this is long before, this is not a public process. This is long before there's any sort of public announcement. So they, they call them and, and say there's, there's a problem with your application, and that gives the bank a chance to um, quietly withdraw their application rather than um, face a public denial. And there are, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why this, um, why this, uh, this practice has, has become so, um, so typical, um, but it's been this way for a long time. And, you know, one of the, one of the logical reasons for it might be that if the agency had, if the agency were to publicly deny um, a merger, they would then have to give a, a really clear um, reason for and, and explain to the public why, um, why, uh, why they denied an application. So they might not want to do that. They might not want to air the, uh, the, the bank's dirty laundry um, in, um, you know, in, in, a, in a public notice and you know, just sort of as a courtesy um, want to, um, to, to work with the, the institution and, and allow them to quietly with, withdraw their application. You know, the, uh, another point that you bring up in the story is that, um, you know, the, the language under the CRA really doesn't, it, it doesn't mention race at all. And maybe you could explain, mm-hmm. you know, what you found when you looked at that, why that might have been and, and what the consequences are for that now. Yeah, so um, so it is the anti-redlining statute, but it's it's sort of a weird twist. It doesn't have any any language that, um, 
that is specific about race. It just focuses on low and moderate income. And researchers have found recently um, that that's not a very good proxy for um, for people of color. There's some overlap, but it's but it's not um, you know it's 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 not really effective. But um, but what I found actually from talking to the um, the author of the CRA and and back in the 70s, you know, this this person was involved in um, in you know haggling over the language in in Congress and 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 um, getting this um, getting this bill passed. What I found was that um, I think I, I, I think if 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 language about race had been included in the law, it might not have um, it might not have passed Congress. Um, so uh, so it was it was you know perhaps a concession to um, to people who were just didn't didn't really want to um, didn't didn't really want to take on the issue that directly. Um, and there was the assumption that um, from from the people who wrote the law that the banking agencies would um, would would take an expansive interpretation of, of low and moderate income and understand it to mean also uh, minorities um, because of the context of the law and because of the intention behind it. But they instead took a very narrow interpretation and um, almost, you know, in, in, instead of um, instead of saying, oh, well, low and moderate income, um, you know, because of the context of the law and, and because of, of the history that, that led to it, obviously includes people of color and, the, and you know, we should be looking at this expansively. Instead, they, um, they almost put blinders on and, um, you know, are, are only look at, um, at low and moderate income. In um, in in the Humda data, of course, Humda data is has been expanded over the years. Humda data um, has many many data points, um, including on on ethnicity and, and race, and so it's kind of puzzling um, why they've chosen to have this narrow interpretation of the anti redlining statute. But there's some um, but there's some sign that that could change. There was a um, Advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which is a which is a step in the way to um, to a regulator um, making a new interpretation of, of a law. Um, there was a, an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking um, about 18 months ago from the Fed, and they actually um, made mention of race and, and said, um, uh, you know, should should there should there be race in, in the interpretation? Should there be language on race in the interpretation of this? Um, of this law, and so um, it'll be really interesting to see the next step on that. But but that certainly um, would be that would be a, a huge change in the way that um, that that CRA is um, is interpreted. Well, and and you point out in the article that you know given the sort of dearth of enforcement of CRA or or, or seemingly any teeth there, that like the DOJ has taken up more uh, redlining investigations without even the prompting of the FDIC, OCC, or Federal Reserve, kind of like doing an end run around it in some ways. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting, right? Like the FDIC, the OCC, the Fed, they're, they're really on the ground. They're the ones that, are, that see what the banks are doing. They're, they're the ones in constant contact with banks. Um, and the fact that the DOJ, which is not the, um, the primary regulator of, of banks, is... Um, is launching its own redlining investigations without getting a referral from those banking agencies must feel very strange. I mean, that's certainly not the typical, um, the typical dynamic. 
Um, and it really, it really raises questions. Um, you know, are they, are those agencies on the same page? Is the DOJ, um, you know, frustrated with, um, with, with, you know, the, the FDIC, OCC, and Fed not moving quickly enough? Well, we have seen those agencies not be on the same page before, uh, you know, in the not too recent <laughs> past when the OCC came out with like whole new guidelines and then those were abandoned. And um, so, yeah, that wouldn't be super, super unusual. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that one of the things that was fascinating to me in your reporting is that the fact that the non-banks actually have uh, fewer problems seemingly or, or, or serve minority homeowners better than the banks where, you know, the whole the whole knock against non-banks has been, oh, there's less reg- regulation. And because, um, you know, they're not depositories, they don't have that community basis. Like the, the whole point of making banks, you know, responsible for lending to everyone in their community is like, they have a branch in that community, then they need to make sure they're they're lending money in that community, not just taking deposits. Whereas you have non-banks, right? Mortgage uh, lenders who are not depositories who seem to do a better job uh, lending to minorities. So what did you find there? I mean, this is really, um, really puzzling to me, um, right? Banks are subject to the CRA and yet um, non-banks are doing, um, when you just look at the numbers, they're serving people of color um, um, much, much better than, than, than banks are. So um, I think there's like a 10 percentage point um, difference in, in terms of um, mortgage loans to borrowers of color. This was from um, um report from the Urban Institute just a couple of months ago. And, um, and so that raises questions of, you know, why, why is this, why is this the case was, is, is, um, is the, is the CRA, what is the, what is the point of the CRA if those who are subject to it are, um, are not, um, are not doing more lending to borrowers of color, um, or at least as much lending to borrowers of color as market participants. Um, but well, uh, honestly, I'd like to point out here, yeah, I'd ahead. like to point out here that it's not just raw numbers. We know that, you know, banks pulled back significantly from doing mortgage loans after the financial crisis, mm-hmm. but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the percentage of the, the loans they do make to borrowers. That's right. That's right. And even within the channels, within agency um, or government channels, um, within FHA, they make fewer um, loans to people of color than non-banks do. Um, So, uh, so, you know, they have really different business models. I think um, for depositories, um, mortgage lending is one of many things that they do. And it's, and it's not necessarily the, um, the most important thing to them, um, um, you know, I think. I think arguably their their business model is more kind of about um, wealth management and services, and and mortgage lending is is a part of that, but um, but not the primary part of that. And yeah, like you said, they have they've pulled back a lot from depositories have pulled back from um, FHA um, in recent years. And um, and their their minority lending has um, has gone down during that same um, that same time period. Of course, you know FHA uh, borrowers are disproportionately people of color, and so you know the, so so that's that's kind of a, a, a logical conclusion. But it's um, of of you know of pulling out of of FHA. But um, you just you would expect that um, that the regulators would be there to kind of remind these institutions that um that that they they need to be doing better 
Um, but that's just really, it, it really seems to not be happening. You had some great reporting in this story about the relationship um, between the the regulators and um, Goldman Sachs and GE Capital Bank when they were trying to do a merger in 2015. Um, and the fact that, you know, the communication that you found uh, between um, officials like the Deputy Associate Director of the Federal Reserve's Banking Supervision and Regulation Div- Division, and then term head of the OCC and the general counsel, and then, you know, um, their interaction with Goldman Sachs. So could you break that down a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so there's, it turns out there's a lot that goes on outside of, um, outside of the public view ahead of a merger to make sure that it all goes, um, that it all kind of goes according to plan. And you can see how this would be really useful for, um, for a company, right? Because they want to, they want to project certainty, they want to be able to tell their um, their investors when a transaction is going to close, and so it, it turns out. And this was an example um, years ago um, of a merger between Goldman Sachs um, and GE Capital Bank. And um, Goldman Sachs went to um, the Federal Reserve for feedback um, before the merger, and they're a lot. They are allowed to um, to do that, but it's in a very limited way. It's it's um, they're al- they're allowed to basically have one uh, one pre-check before they they do the public uh, merger application, um, but this was this was like hundreds of emails back and forth. This was like in-person e- um, meetings. This was this was um, they were sharing um, their pitch deck on the merger. They were uh, Federal Reserve officials were on a um, first name basis with the um, with the Goldman Sachs lawyer. Um, they were they were doing calls on the weekends. I mean, it it just it just really revealed through the, the you know reading through all of this correspondence um, that I reviewed. It just it just really showed that they have a really um, cordial relationship um, that that I I think um, I, I think pushes some boundaries of of what's uh, what's proper. I think that was a really good point because you know when you and I were talking about your reporting on the story before the finished product, you know, we talked about the fact that. You know, it's it's not a bad thing that the regulators, you know, inform people of like, you know, give them advance notice of like, here's where this might go wrong. Um, that's in contrast to say like a regulation by enforcement where um, a bank or financial institution does something and they're not even sure what where they cross the line until they get hit and everyone else else is supposed to learn from that enforcement, right? Um, so that's not ideal. But this, to your point, went way beyond what was normal or expected in that sort of relationship. So um, I thought it was just a really good reporting on this to bring something to light that, um, you know, as you said, your subhead for that section is who's watching the Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they, they clearly have a very strong relationship and if, and, and if you're, you're going beyond, you know, just, just an, an advisory um, pre-check, um, and you're actually getting advice like on how to manage unfavorable media coverage during the merger or the timing of your um, your press release of the merger. It's hard to see how that is um, how how that is not too chummy. Um, I mean, the, it it did appear that the um, that the regulators were um, were coaching them, and one of those those Fed officials at the time. Um, was Michael Sue, um, who who is now he was he was a lawyer at the Fed at, at the time, and now now he is um, the um, the interim um, head of of OCC. 
Um, so it also raises questions about whether those relationships have carried carried forward. If those lawyers still uh, still have those kind kinds of um, kinds of connections and how they deploy them for um, for all of their clients, because of course. Um, this attorney, in this case, it was Rajan Cohen, a well-known attorney um, at Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, you know, Goldman Sachs is is obviously not his only client, and so and so I think that um, that that regulators have um, very close relationships with um, some of some of these top attorneys, um, and and that's part of why um, why these attorneys are are so um, you know so so sought after um, by institutions that are looking. For regulatory approval, just just fascinating all the things you found out there. Um, you know, the the last point I wanted to make was that when you looked at um, the way that CRA is enforced, it has given community groups who are interested in you know fair housing um, more clout because um, some some of what apparently the the mergers some of what those people are looking for is like. Hey, what you know? How what is public opinion about this, or how do these specific community groups feel about this? So, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I started looking into into this and and um, the, this this dynamic of what does what does the community opposition to mer- to mergers look like, and how much is it costing banks? And it turns out it's costing them a lot. Just in the last year, um, more than a hundred billion dollars um, in community benefits agreements have come out of um, uh, opposition to mergers. So this is basically a community group um, getting wind of a merger that's under review and digging into the numbers, or um, you know, if they have if they have boots on, on the ground there, you know, getting into um, y- you know what what kind of lending practices they have in the community. So when there is um, when a community group writes in alleging redlining or marketing discrimination or that they don't have enough, that a bank doesn't have enough branches in a, in a, in a certain neighborhood, that sort of thing. Um, it not only causes a delay um, with the regulator, um, but it, it also in some cases results in, in a community benefits agreement. And that can be either proactive, you know, I, I saw cases of banks sort of going to community groups before a merger and trying to work out a deal. And I saw cases of um, of community benefits agreements um, arising after a, a community group had written into um, a regulator, um, and then you know after they they make a deal, then the community group rescinds their opposition and the merger goes forward. I mean, it's it's obvious that it's a really um, interesting point of leverage. It's a it's a time when community groups know that they can de- at least delay a merger and extract something of benefit for their community. Uh, of course, you know, it's it's far from a, and, and the community groups ad- admit this as well, it's far from a systemic um, solution. It's not, it's, it, you know, not every community um, has the, um, has the ability to, to launch these um, these, uh, these, these arguments against mergers and, um, you know, there's no one checking to see that the banks adhere to the agreements. Um, the agreements are also not, um, not always public. So, um, it's sort of an ad hoc, um, patchwork solution. Um, but it's, but it's certain, it's certainly, um, getting noticed. Uh, by banks, they're certain they're certainly taking notice of these agreements because it's costing them a lot of money. 
Well, and the fact that it's community groups, you know, and many of those that we, you know, report on and are very familiar with, but but also there's just, then there's no accountability. What what does that money go towards? You know, how is it really helping? So right. anytime right. you're, it's sort of an extra ju- judicial process, right? It's not <laughs> regulatory. It's like, you know, what, then there are some problems inherent in that process. Right. So, yeah. So there's, so there's not any accountability or oversight of these agreements. They're negotiated in private. You know, you can imagine situations where, um, you know, a community group negotiates um, an agreement with the bank, but only, you know, only to benefit the organizations that they're on good terms with and, um, you know, or only to benefit their specific community and, and, you know, not, not the, not the broader geographic area. I mean, the, the, the dollar figure is, is quite high. So, if, so, you know, for us, a hundred billion dollars over the past year seems like a lot, but actually, um, an ex banker told me that, um, that it just amounts to a business expense, that, that banks look at how much, um, they're going to have to shell out in order to, um, deal with the opposition from community groups and they, um, and, and they just, they just factor it into, um, sort of the, the diligence thing that they need to do before a merger. Um, and it's not that much money, um, for, for banks. This person told me, um, which I thought was surprising. It seems like a lot of money to me, but, um, but it's, but it's, um, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's really not. No, it, it's really good. Georgia, really great job on this story. You know, um, I would tell our listeners, if you're interested, there are so many different dynamics of what Georgia uncovered and what she talks about. And I know that this is just, you know, one part, it's not like you're done, uh, reporting on redlining. So we're, we're going to look forward to what's coming next there. Um, and, and really just keeping an eye on something that we all know is super important, but you know, it, the devil's in the details here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Georgia, for being on and walking through it with us. And uh, we will look forward to more great reporting coming out. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HW Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.